It's going to be in Exodus 32 this morning, Exodus chapter 32. Getting dangerously close to the end of this book. Pressing on through the last few chapters here. This morning we're going to be looking uh, in Exodus 32. We're going to look at a story that I think is one of the strangest in Scripture, honestly. I think it's just such an odd, an odd story to show up in light of what we've read over the last, uh, the last several months, really the last year or so. It's just an odd story, but it's one that even in the, the, the idea that it, is, uh, that it is strange, it's somehow still very familiar to us. And when I say familiar, I don't mean familiar because we heard it in Sunday school. I mean familiar in the sense that it resonates with us. Familiar in the sense that when we read it, we're like, oh, yeah, I, I know what's going on there. It is an odd event in the life of Israel in light of all that they've been through, but one that is all too relatable for us. You know, sometimes as a preacher, uh, a text can be very challenging. A text can, be, uh, re- can really stretch you to understand what is it trying to say, and then uh, in turn it really stretches me to, to be able to, uh, to preach that passage, to teach it in a way that... that, that opens things up, uh, allows you to understand it better, allows it to kind of to sink in your heart to where you can know it. Sometimes I feel like I, I need to do things that are um, creative in order for you to see it maybe in a different light, that type of thing. And then sometimes you get a text like today's that are so straightforward, you almost feel like you could just read it. At, or at the very least, the application is right there in front of us. This text is really pretty clear for the most part, at least the first half of it. What's happening, its application, it's all pretty straightforward. Yet somehow this text is exactly what I needed to hear this week, and I believe what you need to hear this week, because we cannot hear it, we cannot read it, and we cannot remember it enough. So before we read this text, let's just remember where we are, the context of what we're doing, because the context makes the, the juxtaposition of this chapter even starker. So God has freed Israel from the systematic destruction of, of, uh, of their nation by the nation of Egypt, and he's freed them by systematically destroying Egypt. He has, uh, he's, he's destroyed their, their, their economy, their livestock, their, their religious system. He's done all that in order to set Israel free for Pharaoh to say, go on, get out of here. He's destroyed the the armies of Egypt. He's done everything in order to set Israel free. He's done all of this. God has delivered them. He's brought them to Sinai. Now, he brought them the long way, but he brought them to Sinai where he promised that he would. And there they have set up shop. So this nation that was once enslaved has now gotten free from Egypt, seen their religious system destroyed, their nation destroyed, brought to at least their, their, some of their structures destroyed. They were brought through the, the Red Sea, brought to Mount Sinai, and now they're here in this place and they set up camp and they're receiving the law and they're receiving instructions for a tabernacle and they're receiving instructions for a, 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 a priesthood, and they're receiving instructions for a sacrificial system. All of these things are going on. They're receiving instructions for, uh, for sacrifices and for festivals, and they've had the covenant explained to them, the covenant renewed to them, and they have echoed back that covenant and said, yes, God, what you say we will do. All of those things have happened, and it's a beautiful picture. They've shouted with approval their commitment to God. You remember this line from Exodus chapter 24. 
It says, then he took the book of the covenant. This is Moses. And he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will be obedient. That's the story so far. It's amazing. It sounds like a great movie, escaping from the chains of slavery, the victorious life that follows, everybody high fives on the way out, roll the credits. What a wonderful story this would make. But that's what makes chapter 32 all the more perplexing. So let's dig into the text and let's see what happens. Exodus chapter 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain... The people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. We'll stop right there. That's the way this chapter is going to go. I'm going to read a little bit, talk a little bit, read a little bit, talk a little bit. You want to talk about a verse that you just don't see coming in the narrative. This may be, maybe it's not the top one, but it's one of the top ones in all of Scripture where the narrative is clicking along one way. I mean, he, he just finished in chapter 31 giving information about the Sabbath and the laws and all of these things that are the, the, the kind of stipulations of the covenant and the outworking of the covenant. And then you get to chapter 32, and here is this one. It absolutely catches you by surprise. Everything is going just fine, and then all of a sudden in chapter 32, this is what you have happening. Moses is up on the mountain receiving these instructions and what is happening down below him at the foot of the mountain. The people are tired of waiting on God. They're tired of waiting on Yahweh, their God, the God who has just leveled the gods of Egypt. They're tired of waiting on him. They're tired of being tired. They've not had a home. They've not had a regular routine They've not had a place where they could say, this is mine, this is where I want to be. They don't have any of those things. No permanent home, no jobs, no real civilization at this point. Just sitting there waiting on God to do something. And they don't even know what. They got impatient. They got frustrated. And they knew what religion looked like. They had seen it before in Egypt. They saw what Egypt did and how the Egyptians worshipped. They had kind of incorporated some of that worship into their own religion. It's called syncretism, where their religion and the Egyptians' religion kind of meshes together and kind of synchronizes together. They have taken in some of that, so they know what religion looks like. They don't know what Moses is doing on top of the mountain, and they don't know when he's coming back, but they know what religion looks like. And what they know right now is that whatever Moses is doing on top of that mountain ain't helping them a lick. They need something else that will make them feel a little bit better. And they know what that looks like and how to do it. Now, did that religion work? Well, it worked enough for Egypt to practice it and for them to know what it is. It didn't work in the long run. It didn't ultimately work for them. But as we'll see here in just a minute, that's really kind of secondary in the whole equation. It worked enough to where they had seen it before and they wanted what they knew and they wanted what they trusted. And what they trusted is what they had seen their whole lives. What they trusted is what they were comfortable with. And this tells us something about our hearts right from the word go this morning. Some of you will understand this immediately. 
Some of you will be confused by this, but it's true of all of us. It kind of depends on how you're wired. But our worship doesn't always come from the most logical place. Let me say that again. Our worship doesn't always come from the most logical place, from the place that makes the most sense in our heads. Sometimes our worship comes from a place that is nothing but comfort. Sometimes our worship comes from a place of familiarity. Sometimes it comes from a place of ego and pride. We all worship. If you are here this morning, if you live and breathe, you worship. If you're in here this morning, you're saying, well, I'm not all that religious. I haven't been to church. I don't sing these songs. I don't know these songs that you guys are singing. I really don't worship. I want you to understand something. The way we are made, our hearts reach and long for something. We all worship, right? All of us worship. That is our job. That is our task as humans. We all worship. The question is, what drives that worship? Is it comfort? Is it familiarity? Is it ego and pride? We all worship. But what drives our worship is different for different people. And what drives our worship now might be different than what drives it in a month from now or in a week from now. It isn't always what makes the most sense or what is the most logical that produces worship. Sometimes it is, but not always. What would have been logical would, for, would have been for Israel to worship Yahweh with all that they had. After all, we just recounted all the things that he had done to set them free. That makes the most sense logically if you follow the logical path. If you're here this morning and that's how you work and that's how you think, you're a logical person, A plus B plus C, you follow and it's a line, it's a straight line to things, then whenever you read this passage, you're going to say, what in the world were they thinking? But this is the problem. They weren't thinking. They were being led by something else. It would have been logical for Israel to, to worship Yahweh with all they had because of what he had done. But what felt right to them was what was familiar, not what was logical. They went back to what they were comfortable with to what they knew, to what they could manipulate, to what they could control. You see, this is the thing about idols. This is true in Egypt, and this is true for us. Here's the thing about idols. We trust them to deliver for us as though they are God, but we want to control them as though we are God. We trust them to deliver for us as though they are God, but we want to control them as though we are God. And that's what makes them so appealing. They are ours. We are in control. And that feels so safe. It feels so safe to be able to say, I, you get your cake and you eat it too. You get the best of both worlds. You get the, 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 the provision of a God while you get to control that God and manipulate that God. What a wonderful system that is. And that is the system of religion that most of the world is built on. What a wonderful thing that is to feel so safe. But friends, hear me. There is nothing that is more dangerous for your soul than that. To pretend that your God is yours instead of the fact that you are his. And this is where we get things wrong. So let's keep reading. Exodus chapter 32, verse 2. 
So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears, and they brought them to Aaron. Stop there. Do you see the irony in this? Think about this for just a second. They've not been gone from Egypt all that long. They've not had a time to amass a bunch of treasures and plunder a bunch of people. Do you know where this gold came from? This gold came from God's provision when they plundered the Egyptians while they were walking out of Egypt. That's where the gold came from. Do you remember reading this? this is, we read this on Easter Sunday this year. They walked out of Egypt and it said that a, not a dog even wagged its head at them. And they went to the people and it was like the, the, revert, it was the, 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 the trick-or-treating for the ages. Because they went, knocked on the door, said, give me your gold. And the Egyptians were like, take it, just get away from me. That's where this gold came from. From the moment of their deliverance out of Egypt is where they got this gold. That gold was God's provision. A symbol of God's triumph over their captors. Yet now that gold is about to become a little G-O-D God. If I want to camp out right there, I've got my whole sermon for me. I don't really need to even go past that. The reality is that the gifts God gives us can too often become our gods. Instead of driving us to him, instead of allowing us to worship him deeper because we see the provision which he has given us and we celebrate that, the gift becomes the God. We fall in love with the gift and not the giver. I mean, where do I start here in the ways that we do this? Our spouse, our kids, our money, our jobs, our education, our health, our athletics. Virtually anything that we deem good in our life can replace God if we don't mind our hearts. And I've said this before. Good things that become God things are bad things. Good things that become God things are bad things. And so it is here with Israel. A good thing, God's provision, has become a bad thing because they made it into a God. And let me be clear in the way that I say this, right? So an easy application for that would be for you to hear, you're right, I shouldn't make my kids uh, an idol in my life. I shouldn't make my spouse, my boyfriend, my girlfriend an idol in my life. I shouldn't make my education an idol in my life. And then what you can say is, I need to dial it back just a little bit. I don't need to be quite so devoted to those kids or to my spouse. I don't need to be so all in on them. That is not what I am saying at all. I don't think that that is a biblical picture of what we are talking about. I'm not saying you shouldn't love your kids or your spouse or any of these great things that God has given us as a blessing. In fact, I think you should love them with every fiber of your being, with all you've got. I think you should pursue your education with everything that is within you. I think you should work at your job as though you are working to the Lord, as the Scripture says. You should put everything into that. See, this is not a zero-sum game where you need to make sure that, that God gets just a little bit more than they get. So God gets 51%, my kids get 49%, and that's how we work out the worship, and that's how we make sure that God is just a little bit above my kids. That is not what I am saying at all. What I am telling you is that you give 100% to all of these things, to your kids, to your spouse, to your job. You give 
all of it to that. And then as you give that 100%, that should produce an even greater affection for God and love for God because you see what He has given you, the stewardship that He has given you, the blessing He has given you. And as you love those things, you it, it just produces even more worship to God. So it's not like you've only got a, 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 an amount of worship to give and you dole that out to the right people at the right times. So you just make sure God gets the most. It's not a, a small pile of worship that you give away. What it is, is you love your family and it makes that worship grow and get bigger and bigger. You love your, your wife and that makes your love for God grow even bigger as you love her more. That's the way that that should work. So the more you love your wife, it should, it should result in an overflow of worship that makes you worship God even more. So don't back off of how you love things and how you pursue things. Just let it produce an overflow of love and worship for God. But that's not at all how this plays out for Israel. Let's keep reading in verse 4. And he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Oh my goodness. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. What a heartbreaking way to end that paragraph. They're fashioning something out of this gold that God had given to them from the plunder of Egypt. And they are saying, this is what it is that has set us free. And they're going to pretend to worship God as they bow at the altar of this idol. You say, what in the world is going on here? Nobody's going to, if I put a, a, a golden cow up here, nobody's going to be like, oh yes, you did it. Listen, do you remember when we were going through the plagues, right? When we were going through the plagues, what we said is that every one of those plagues was a systematic takedown of the pantheon of gods that Egypt had. Do you remember one of the plagues was the plague of livestock, where all the livestock died? They worshipped in that way. There was a God for the livestock. And what's going on here is they are rebuilding the gods of Egypt that God had destroyed. They're rebuilding them, reintroducing them back into their worship. So it doesn't make any sense to us because a golden cow makes no sense for us to bow down and worship that, right? You're not going to get the, the Mayfield cow in here and be like, ooh, there it is, right? So you're not going to do that. You realize how ridiculous that that looks. You, you realize that. But you see, for them, that was a symbol of religion. That was a symbol of power. That was a symbol of, of the, the ability to be able to to use the livestock for economy and for food, for so many different things. And so they build this golden calf and they say, this is where we are going to put our worship. And then it ends. It ends in such a heartbreaking way. Israel has just sinned against the God that saved them. They have just rebelled in a bold, arrogant, heartless, illogical fashion and the capstone to all of it at the end they ate they drank and they rose up to play it's almost hard for me to read it's so calloused it's so dismissive oh but man it's so honest 
And unfortunately, it's so very familiar. You see, this is what sin usually looks like. When we talk about sin, we usually, especially on a Sunday morning, talk about sin in its ugliness, the aftermath of sin, the, 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 the consequences of sin, how the sin tears families apart, how the sin tears you down, how the sin tears friendships apart, how the, the sin will destroy you and eat you alive and all of those things. And that is all very, very true. And what we're trying to do here is we're trying to pull that mask off of the sin so that you see that. But I have to tell you, that's the way we talk about it here on Sunday morning and try to, try to expose it. But that is not what sin looks like on the other side most of the time. In the moment, this is usually what it looks like. Eat, drink, and rise up to play. Eating and drinking and having a good time. There's nothing we love more than having a good time. This is, after all, what all of the idols ultimately promise. This is what our sin promises us. It promises us that life will be eating and drinking and having a good time for all. God is just a killjoy. Did God really say that you shouldn't do this? This is how it all began with Eve in the garden. Why not worship what we want? Look at what it results in. They got to eat, drink, and play. Why not worship the golden calf? They got to party. Our temporary pleasures, our temporary pleasures is what our sin so often looks like. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Our hearts shout that within us so often. Satan is a liar, and his chief currency is the lie of temporary pleasures. And Israel has bought in, and so do we, every single day. Let's see what God's response to this is. Verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So God knows what's going on. He's not fooled. He sees it all that's happening. Notice the change in pronouns from verse 7, from what we've read every single other time in the book of Exodus. It goes from my people whom I brought up out of the land of Egypt to now Moses is your people that you brought up out of Egypt. It's sharp in its tone. It's sharp in its implications as well. Verse 10, or verse 9. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that, I might, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. Yikes. God ain't playing around. He sees what's happening below there, and he says, you know what, Moses? I'm done with them. I'm giving you the covenant up here. I'm pouring out my grace to you and to these people up here, and this is what they're doing. I'm done with them. God's first response isn't the one that we've been told that God always has towards sin. 
He doesn't say, oh, you know what, guys, it's all right. I just, I just gave you those Ten Commandments. You probably didn't, you probably hadn't processed those just yet. You probably didn't have those memorized just yet. Tell you what, we'll let this one slide, give you a warning, slap you on the wrist. We're good. We're good. We'll just let this one go. This is what we're told that God does at, at the worst. If not, just say, you know what, you're right. That looks like fun. You guys probably should do that. I'd probably do that. That's, that's what the, the, the response to sin is for most people. As long as it looks like fun, as long as it feels good, as long as you can eat, drink, and have fun, go to play, then what could be wrong with that? After all, if the heart wants it, the heart wants it, and that's fine. And what God is saying here is, no, 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 no. That is not going to be my response to sin. That is not going to be my response to where you have disobeyed me here. That is not his response at all, and we would do well to note his anger. He is ready to wipe them off the face of the earth. He wants to go back and start over with Moses the way he started over with Noah. His anger burned hot against them, it says. Friends, we trifle with sin as though it were just an extra prayer of forgiveness or a small blemish against our names. We play with sin as though it is nothing significant. Sin is no small matter. God's wrath burns against us in our sin. Against us, not just our sin. His wrath burns against us. We do not understand His holiness. We do not comprehend his greatness. And because we do not understand his holiness, we do not understand our sinfulness. Nor do we understand his righteous anger. We would do well to note that here. When God sees sin, he burns hot with anger. Verse 11. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. There's a lot we could talk about there. We're not going to get into all the theological implications of that paragraph, but I think it's important for us to note what Moses does here. Moses goes before God. He intercedes before God. He says, God, don't do those things. God, please don't wipe them out. Hear me out here. And he intercedes on behalf of his people. And I want you to see three things about this intercession, about what he calls on God to do that we should note this morning. The first thing that he does, he goes to them. The first aspect of his plea to God to relent is past redemption and rescue. Past redemption and and rescue. He says, these are the people you have redeemed. Don't kill them now. You've shown them grace before. Show them grace again. Continue in that grace. 
Moses goes back to the mercy that has been shown in the past. The second thing that Moses brings up is a witness to the nations. He says, think about what Egypt will say. They saw how you set us free. They saw how you brought this nation out. Think about what they will say. That, he just brought, that you just brought all of us out here to die. Don't do that. Moses recognizes that Yahweh's name and reputation are on the line. What kind of deliverer brings his people out just to abandon them or to kill them? He says, don't let that be said about you, God. The third thing that he does is he goes back to his previous covenant with Abraham. He goes back to the covenant God made with Abraham. That he would make a great nation out of him. He never appeals to the goodness of the people of Israel. There is no appeal to be made. He appeals to the goodness of God, the graciousness of God, the mercy of God, and the covenant that God has made. In effect, he says, I know your people have failed and are not good, but you do not fail, and you are good. These three things are, in many ways, our same ground for trusting in God's provision today. Past rescue, the first one. We'll get to the cross in a minute. We'll talk about how that plays into this. But for now, we can simply look on the testimony of Scripture and God's people. How God saved men and women that did not deserve it. How He rescued men like Moses and David and Paul. Women like Eve and Rahab and Mary Magdalene. How He, he worked in those things. The overwhelming testimony of Scripture is that God saves those who do not deserve it. We can go back to the testimony of Scripture that says that God works in the lives of people who deserve none of that. We can go back to God's grace and we can talk about how God's grace should be. The second point, God's grace should be triumphed to the nations. Today, just as it was for Moses then, God's grace is a witness to the nations, to those who do not believe. This is the heartbeat of missions. This is the heartbeat of church planting. This is the heartbeat of evangelism. God's glory. Philippians 2, 10 and 11 says, So that at the name of, every, of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. This is throughout the world. Every nation will see the glory of God and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you see how that works there? God's grace is meant to be a testimony to the whole earth. And the third thing, we talked about the idea of covenant a few weeks ago. We are the people of the new covenant, a covenant built on the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, and the Davidic covenant, all of which are testimonies to the initiating, pursuing grace of God. We go back to the same things that Moses does in his intercession. So God relents, and Moses goes down to see just what has happened. He sees the commotion and the calf, and he wants Aaron to answer for what has happened. Verse 22. And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. He's talking to, to Moses. Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, they are, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me. And I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. It's, it's a... It's a it's a comedy what Aaron does here, even in the midst of the tragedy. 
Aaron does what should sound familiar to us. It's what we do. It's what Adam did. He blames someone else, and then he plays dumb. This is what your kids do. This is what we do. This is what Adam did, right? Do you remember what Adam said? Whenever God says, why did you do this? Adam says, the woman you gave me. She did it. It's her fault. Aaron says, you know these people. These people are terrible people. What am I supposed to do? I'm just one guy. These people are terrible. I just threw their gold in there and out came a cow. Like, what? That, that's what he says. He, he blames and then he plays dumb. Moses isn't buying it and he immediately shows that there are repercussions for the evil that has been committed. You keep reading down, people are killed for what has happened. Again, underscoring the seriousness of sin. But then Moses tells the people, what you've done is terrible, but I will try to make atonement for what you have done. Verse 31. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned, a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of, made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now, go. Lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. And then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. They didn't just pop out of the fire. You see, Moses recognized that the sin against God had to be reconciled. He knew that before he ever went back up the mountain. He knew something was going to have to be done. He knew that the sin was too much. He knew it couldn't be left undone and undealt with. It was too great an offense. He knew someone or something had to step in. He had just received the instructions about the priesthood and the tabernacle and the sacrificial system. He knew something had to be done. He had just just taken that detailed notes about all of it. So he attempted to make an atonement offering for the people of Israel. God doesn't accept the offering. So Moses says, in nothing short of a heroic gesture that should teach us much about what a leader is to look like, he says, take me, not them. Just take me. Spare them, God. Just take me. Let let me endure the punishment for their sin. Let me do that. And then in a moment of what I think is sadness in what is an otherwise triumphant book, God says that he will not do that either. Their sin has separated them. See, Moses' offer of atonement is rejected because Moses cannot stand in the gap for their sin. He doesn't meet the requirements that have been laid out for a sin offering. He wasn't a spotless lamb. He wasn't guiltless and not even close. We've seen the the incident with the rock. He's going to have another incident with the rock if you keep reading into the book of Numbers. We've seen that he's murdered someone. We've seen how he's doubted God's goodness to go forward and be before Pharaoh. And he had to have Aaron come with him because he didn't trust that God could do things. Moses isn't perfect. Moses is a sinful person. So he doesn't meet the requirements for the spotless lamb. But there would be one that would come who would be guiltless. One that could meet the requirements of the Lamb. 
Jesus is the atoning sacrifice Moses could never be. He is the, the spotless lamb. As John tells us, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he is the one that does make atonement and intercession for us. Those in the Old Testament would look forward to that day when that offering would be made. If you've ever wondered, how are old people in the Old Testament saved versus people in the New Testament? The answer is, it's the same for all of us. In the Old Testament, they look forward to the cross. Now, we look back to the cross. But it all goes back to the cross, to the one sacrifice that was done once for all, as we've read over and over in the book of Hebrews over the last few weeks. The sin is the same. The sin of the golden calf is the same as our sin of idolatry and whatever, whatever we worship today. Whatever that is for you. Whatever, whatever multiple calves you have. It's the same sin. It's the same sin. It's, it's, it's effectively the same sin of the very beginning of Adam and Eve's sin. Rather than trusting in God, in His Word, trusting in His goodness and what He has laid out for them, they determined that they knew better than, God's, than, than God Himself. And they ascribed God's goodness and His character and His work to a golden calf, and we ascribe it to who knows what else. They said the golden calf has delivered us, and we say if I could just have this boyfriend and this girlfriend, they would deliver me. If I could just have a kid, then that kid would deliver me. If I could just have a great marriage, that would deliver me. If I could just have a better job, that would deliver me. If I could just have a better paycheck, that would deliver me. If I could just have something else I don't have, that would deliver me. And oftentimes, our idol is the thing that we just don't have. Because we're going to keep going to these idols and we're going to keep realizing that they don't ever deliver us. So instead, we go to Christ, the one who can deliver us, the one who is the perfect atonement for sin, the one who is the spotless lamb. And we stop chasing after fleeting pleasures. We stop pretending that the goal of life is to eat, drink, and go out to play. And instead, we praise God and we celebrate the fact that the appeasement of his wrath was laid upon Jesus Christ. And I want you to understand this. In your sin, like, I think it can be easy to think, well, I'm a Christian. God's wrath doesn't burn against me anymore. I, I've accepted Christ. I get it. I'm on board with that. His wrath doesn't burn against me anymore. His, 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 my sin, is, it's not the same level as though I were not a, a Christian there's some ways in which that is true. But I want you to understand, your sin still invokes the same righteous, hot, burning wrath of God. The difference is that's not delivered on your head, it's delivered on Christ. It's the same wrath. Your sin does not just get dismissed and thrown out into the ether just because you're a Christian. The wrath is appeased. By Christ. The wrath is appeased by the atonement, but the wrath is still there. That is what Christ did for you on the cross. He absorbed that wrath. He took that wrath. And then he gave you his righteousness. And so you can go before God and you can say, it's as if you haven't sinned at all. Not because he just dismissed it, but because that punishment was taken on by Jesus Christ. That's the Christian faith. 
That's the message of the cross. That's the message of the book of Exodus. That's the message of the Bible. That is the Christian faith. It's not politics. It's not any of this other stuff that you see people claiming it to be. It's not hate. It's not about, it's not about picking one group over the other group. It is that right there. The heart of the Christian faith is the atonement for our sins by the perfect spotless Lamb of God. And if you have not accepted that atonement, then that wrath of God still sits on your head today. That is not an easy thing to say. That is not an easy thing to be able to teach. But I would not be loving if I did not say that. The wrath of God is there. The anger of God burns. But praise be to God, there is one who has stood in the gap and an atoning atoning sacrifice that unlike Moses's, it was accepted. And you simply have to come underneath that. And that is what the Christian faith is. And I urge you this morning, if you have not placed yourself under the atoning, saving work of Jesus Christ, cast yourself on him this morning. Plead for mercy, and he will give it. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you is not enough for us this morning. We cannot simply say, Thanks for what we have read. We know that our sin is as great and greater than the people of Israel. Our idols are many. Our hearts stray. Our words are deceitful. Our actions betray betray our mask that we like to wear. Father, we sit underneath this wrath and we plead for mercy at the cross. And we have no other plea. Nothing else we can say. Nothing else we can bring save the mercy through the atoning, spotless blood of the Lamb. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'll be available at the back. We'll have others who will be available to pray with you. If you would like to talk more about what this means to follow Christ, to be able to give your life to Him and come underneath that atoning sin or that atoning blood for your sin, we can talk about that. We can pray about that. You can, you can make that happen today by repenting of that sin and giving it all to Him. Don't leave here this morning wondering, well, I wonder about the wrath of God. I wonder how bad that anger is. You can come to Christ today. Sit at the feet of the foot of the cross today and be covered by that atoning sacrifice. Do that today.